So as we um, dive back into our Romans series this morning, like I said, we're plunging headfirst into chapter eight. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter eight this morning, we're gonna be looking at verses one through eight. And as you're turning there, I'd like to just take a brief moment to remind you of all the things we have seen so far in the first two parts of this Romans series. In a way, you can keep all of this together is every week when we say that congregational response. That basically outlines for you the main points that we're seeing in Romans. That's very intentional as we join our voices and our hearts in remembering what God is teaching us in this letter. And so we've seen the main point in Romans is unity with one another. How all of these grand theological truths are not meant to divide us as we bicker about what they mean, but they're actually meant to bind us together in unity as God's people. And we saw in chapters one through three that we are all, no matter our background, Jew, Gentile, young, old, grew, grew up in the church or not, we are all united in our deadness in sin and separation from God without Jesus. There is nothing that anybody in this room can bring to God that makes us worthy of salvation. We can't impress him. We all need him. And then in chapters, uh, at the end of chapter three, going into chapter five, we saw that we are all united in our justification by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. God, by his grace, is the one who justifies us, who pardons us from all our sin and declares us righteous in Christ. And then in chapters six and seven, we began to, to look at our unity and sanctification. And sanctification, that's the, the big word that we use to describe your growth, your transformation in the image of God, your renewal in holiness and in Christ-likeness. And we've begun to see how that too is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as we're going to see this morning, it's in the power of the Holy Spirit alone. Because remember where we left off in chapter seven, Paul had spent a long time talking about the role of the law. What is the point of all those laws in the Old Testament that trip you up in your Bible reading plan? Like, what was going on there? And Paul reminded us the point of that was to bring us to the end of ourselves. That we would see, yeah, you can give us all the truth, all the right information, and yet what that does is it reveals how dead and sin we are. It reveals how much we need Jesus. And so that's where Paul began to transition, where he was praising that Jesus Christ is the one who redeems us from our body of death and sin. And so let's see now where he is he's leading us in Romans 8. This is Romans 8, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of our God for us, his people. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh. Now, as we step into this text this morning, a question that I think is, is good for us to consider, because the way we answer this will show how much we see that God is teaching in these verses, is this. Why did Jesus die for you? 
Why did Jesus die for you? This is not just a Sunday school uh, question for our children in children's ministry right now. This is a question that's at the heart of our faith. And so often what we'll answer is to save me from my sins. And that is true. But so often we only think of that as half the truth. We think, well, I'm forgiven and you know, that's it. I'm not in trouble with God anymore. I don't have to go to hell, no guilt, no shame. For me, I'm free, I'm forgiven. And that's all true and it's amazing, but it's actually only half the truth. There's more to Jesus's death for us than just pardon. The even better half is that Jesus died to save us from our sins, from the condemnation and power of our sin, so that we might have life and peace in the power of the Spirit, not just in eternity, when you die and go to heaven and when Christ returns and makes all things new, but so that you might even begin to enjoy those things right now as a follower of Jesus who is filled with his Spirit. And so the key truth we're going to unpack in Romans 8, 1 through 8 this morning is that Christ's death sets us free from the condemnation and power of sin and for life and peace in the Spirit. You'll notice in your bulletin, I tweaked the key truth in my notes and forgot to tweak it in the outline that went in the bulletin. So you want to pencil, if you take notes, pencil in next to condemnation and the power of sin. We'll see why that's important. But Christ sets us free from condemnation and the power of sin and for life and peace in the Spirit. So let's dig into verses one through four together and see how he sets us free from condemnation and the power of sin. As you look at that text with me, Romans 8.1 is one of the most beloved verses in the entire Bible. Um, like there are Puritans who preach like not just one sermon, but many sermons on this verse because it is so good. It, it spells out in the clearest and simplest of terms that Jesus paid it all. Every one of your sins, past, present, future, the condemnation that those sins deserve is done away with. No condemnation means exactly what it says. No condemnation remains for you if you are in Christ. And it's important to remember that in the Bible, condemnation has a very specific meaning. It's actually not talking about how, how you feel, like your guilt and your shame when you sin. Condemnation is talking about God's judgment, his holy wrath and justice against your sin, eternally and ultimately speaking. So when there's no condemnation for us, it means God's judgment against your sin, which we deserve. We don't like to think about that. We like to think that you know, our sin is just this problem that's gotta get fixed. Our sin is a massive problem because it's an offense to God's holiness. It is our did not, he would not be good. He'd be a corrupt judge. He'd be someone who winks at evil and injustice. And so our sin ought to be condemned, and yet Paul is saying that God has done our redemption in a way where that condemnation no longer falls on us. We are no longer separated from him. And we'll get to how God made that happen, but the important thing to see for us is that what this verse means is that when you sin, and you do feel guilty, and you feel ashamed of your sin, if you're in Christ, those feelings no longer have to lead you to hide. Like Adam and Eve hid in the garden, and they covered themselves with fig leaves. When we sin, we no longer ought run away from God, but we get to run to him. And we run to him because in Christ, you get to run to God's throne of grace, where you are showered with his love and his mercy. Your sins now, when you commit them, they don't foreshadow the, the judgment seat of your condemnation. They actually become something that get to push you to the throne of grace so you remember you are forgiven. 
There is mercy that is new every morning for you in Christ because there is now no condemnation for you for your sin. You've been set free from that. And as wonderful as Romans 8, 1 truly is, it's important to remember this is verse 1 of a 39-verse chapter. And so Paul continues. The good stuff keeps on getting even better. In verse 2, he talks about the fact that in Christ, we are not only set free from pardon, or we're not only set free from sin's condemnation, we're not only pardoned, but we're also liberated from sin's power. This is what he means when he talks about being set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, when he uses that phrase, the law of sin and death, if you look back a couple verses into chapter 7, the last time we were in Romans, we, we saw verses 21 through 25 of Romans 7. And there Paul talked about this, another, this second law waging war in his members. He called it the law of sin, working in him. And he wasn't talking about there, you know, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. He was talking about the power of sin in his fallen humanity, in his body, his mind, his heart, that, that waged war against any, any semblance of God's truth and righteousness. And remember, that's what brought Paul to the end of himself. He realized, I am enslaved to sin. And even more frighteningly so, without Christ, we want to be enslaved to sin. We like our sin. And so he cried out, how can I be free of this? He was brought to the end of himself, and he was brought to long for Christ. And now here in Romans 8, 2, Paul is saying, here's how Christ frees you from it. With the law of the spirit of life. In other words, if sin is this corrupting power source in us, you can't just be pardoned from its effects in order to be truly free you need a new power source put in you. You know, if you, if, you change your, if you don't change this car's battery, you just jump it a little bit. You know, you might go another couple miles, but if you don't change that battery, it has no life. It's gonna die again. And so what Paul is saying here is that the spirit comes in. You have a new power source in your heart and it's not of your own making. It's not in your control. It is the third person of the triune God. It is God's own spirit who comes in and breaks the stranglehold of sin on your life. Sin is no longer the tyrannical master over you. You are now led by the Spirit of God. And so we'll continue to unpack that, but Paul is saying that this is what Christ came to do for us. He came not just to give himself for us on the cross to free us from sin's condemnation, as if that's not good enough, but he also came to put his Spirit in us to free us from sin's power. And so with that in view, in verse three, we see how God did this. And Paul reminds us, again, lest we forget, that what God did in Christ, the law was powerless to do. And not because the law was bad. The Old Testament wasn't, you know, uh, you know a failed plan A and then Jesus' plan B. The law was good. The problem is us. We are lawbreakers. We don't want to keep it. No amount of truth and right information and doctrine and reading and podcasting can fix the fact that apart from Jesus, we're dead in our sin. Our flesh weakens the greatest of truth because we won't apply it. We might do it when it's convenient, but when the chips come down, if, if it's just us and we're without Christ, we will always break the law. We'll bend the truth to our own convenience. Here was truly miraculous. He did what no one else could do, and he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In other words, God got personally involved. And recognize the unity of the Trinity here. We, we often say at Christ Community, we are not saved from the Father. You know, sometimes when you read the Bible, you think of God the Father as you know, the one with all the condemnation, and we gotta be saved from that. 
But what this is saying is, no, the Father sent the Son to bring you home to himself. We are saved to the Father. Jesus coming to die on the cross from your sins was the Father's idea. It was his plan. He wants to be your good, good, heavenly Father. And that can be hard for some of us. You know, if you grow up in, in, in earthly circumstances where your own father has failed you, you know, you hear that God is a father and there's a lot of baggage there. Um, so it's important that we hear scripture, though, say, you know, the father of, of the Bible, God our father, is a good father. He sent his greatest treasure, his own son, to bring you home because he loves you and he wants you to be with him. And he sent Jesus, Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, And that's a really balanced phrase there. What Paul is saying is that Jesus truly became human. He had a real body that was prone to suffering in this world that is broken and cursed by sin, just like our bodies. You know, if he stubbed his toe, it would hurt. More importantly, when he's on the cross, it hurt. He felt it. It was real. He had a real heart and mind, um, just like all of us. You know, his mind wasn't some sort of AI supercomputer. He had a human brain, just like you and me. He became truly human. And yet, it's only the likeness of sinful flesh, not that he's like Clark Kent, you know, Superman who only looks like us but doesn't feel our pain. The likeness or the distance Paul is creating is that Jesus was not sinful. There's no way in which Jesus sinned. There were no desires in him that were sinful and bent away from God. He was tempted in every way from without, yet without sin. He always overcame temptation. He never sinned. He fulfilled God's law perfectly in our place. And so what Paul is saying is that the Son came to get all the way near us in our humanity. And he came for sin. And that phrase is a particular phrase that means Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our sins. What he came to do was to die the death that our sin deserves on the cross. And so this is then, as Paul says, how God condemned sin in the flesh. And it's important to recognize that what changed on the cross wasn't God's feelings or opinion of our sin. You know, on the cross, it wasn't like, well, okay, Jesus died, so God's like, all right, you know what? I'm not gonna take issue with anger anymore. It's not that big of a deal to me. Or, you know, your lust, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. It's, it's not a big deal anymore. Jesus died, I don't, I don't care about that stuff anymore. What changed on the cross was who was condemned for your sin. It wasn't you, it was Jesus. That rebellion against him now falls not on you, though you deserve it, though I deserve it, it fell on Jesus, who didn't deserve it in the slightest. So what changed on the cross wasn't the sinfulness of sin, it wasn't the justice of God, it was who endured that just judgment. And it was Jesus in your place, in my place, in our place. He came for sin, to be that sacrifice. And notice, though, that there's a turning point. If you look at the end of verse three, it does not end with a period. There's a comma there, and then the next three words in verse four are in order that. And this is a great set of words. You know, it's oftentimes you'll hear like, okay, if you see therefore in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what's it there for? You know, circle the therefores, they show you the connection between the ideas. In the same way, when you see in order that, or so that, you wanna underline that, highlight it in bright pink, like whatever you do to draw attention to something in the Bible, because this phrase tells you, here's a reason why. Here's the purpose. This is what I'm driving at. This is why this thing is happening. And Paul is saying that all of this happened. Our sin was condemned in Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
And there's a, a lot there that we need to unpack. But the first thing you need to know is that Paul is alluding to a very specific promise that God made in the Old Testament. It's in Ezekiel 36, 27. You can flip there, but I'll read it for you if you don't want to flip there. But in your margins, again, if you're a note taker, you want to write here, Ezekiel 36, 27. Because there, as God was looking forward to what he would do in Christ, as he's telling Ezekiel, this is what I will do in the new covenant, he said this, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm going to transform you from within so the way you live is radically different. You will no longer be bound to sin, but you will have my spirit as a power source in your life. And what Paul is getting at here is very important because so often when we think about the Old Testament law, a lot of times what we think is like, man, I'm really glad I'm a 21st century Christian. Like I get to eat shrimp. Um, I can have, I'm from the Mid-Atlantic. Like I get to have crabs. I can have all that stuff. You know, Don't have to worry about no shellfish. I can wear clothes that have mixed fibers um, and all that, all that good stuff. Um, I don't have to follow those cleanliness laws, like all these rituals. Like I just gotta worry about, I just gotta shower like once a day. Like that's all I gotta do. And you know, you can think about that and like, yes, there, there are less specifics that we follow, but the reason that we don't have to observe those things anymore is not because God was like, yeah, you know, that, that really was tedious. Like, that was, that was a bit much, it was a bit excessive. Jesus obeyed it, so you don't have to, you don't have to worry about any of that. The reason we don't have to observe those dietary and cleanliness laws anymore is, be, is one, yes, Jesus' spirit dwelling within you. Holiness and righteousness and Christ-likeness, these are not things that externally you're trying to, to put on yourself by your own rule-following and law-keeping. These are things that are being grown in you because the very spirit of God's holiness is in you. The original power source of God's holiness now dwells in you as a Christian. That is why, Paul says, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. It's passive there. You're not fulfilling it. It's fulfilled in you as you walk as one who is filled with God's own spirit. This is a remarkably positive statement about what it means to be a Christian. You know, so often we think about our, our lives as Christians and we kind of live and talk about ourselves as, you know, like, I'm, I'm someone who's no longer condemned, and that's very negative, right? You know, like, imagine um, if right before Kate and I got married, I went out and did something really dumb and got thrown in jail. And it's like, all right, looks like Matt's not gonna make it to his wedding. But then imagine my best man, who was my brother, being a good little brother. It's like, all right, I'm gonna bust you out. I'm gonna take your place. I'll take the condemnation. And so he sets me free. So I'm out of jail. I'm not condemned anymore. If all I did, not just the next day, but for the rest of my life was say, my brother took my place, I'm no longer condemned. Y'all look at me like, yeah, but did you go to the wedding? Did you get married? Did you live the life he set you free for? And so often that's like what happens to us as Christians. We focus so much only on Romans 8.1, we don't get to everything Paul's driving at. You are set free from condemnation and from the power of sin so you can live in the spirit, positive. There's something new in you because of what Jesus has done. His death isn't just for your pardon, it's for your empowerment by his spirit. And that changes you from the inside out. John Stott explains this really well for us in his commentary on Romans. Stott was a 20th century British theologian and, and biblical scholar. And he says this, the flesh renders the law impotent. The spirit empowers us to obey it. This is not perfectionism. Again, this is not perfectionism. 
is simply to say that obedience is a necessary and possible aspect of Christian discipleship. Although the law cannot secure this obedience, the Spirit can. Our freedom from the law, proclaimed, for instance, in Romans 7, 4, 6, and 8, 2, is not freedom to disobey it. On the contrary, the law obedience of the people of God is so important to God that he sent his Son to die for us and his Spirit to live in us in order to secure it. Holiness is the fruit of Trinitarian grace, of the Father sending his Son into the world and his Spirit into our hearts. And remember, holiness, that's Christ-likeness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And so a question for us to think about this morning is, how is Jesus' death for you shaping your everyday life? It's not just an answer. Up in the ways of the Lord, and you're like, well, you know, why did Jesus die? For my sins. You know, it's very easy to say that with boredom and be nonplussed about it. That should bother us. We shouldn't get bored with the fact that the Son of God died for our condemnation on the cross. There's a purpose behind it, and the purpose is to change how you get to live today. And so, you know, as you think about applying that, you know, it is, it is Mother's Day. And, you know, for, for moms, like, mom guilt is a thing. Um, I don't know it firsthand, but I, I see it, and it's awful. Um, and it can come sometimes most intensely um, within the church because, you know, you don't just want to be a, a mom who gets your kids, you know, a good education and raises them up to be well-behaved members of society. Like, you want them to know the Lord. And suddenly that can feel like just another thing on this massive, never-ending to-do list. It's like, you know, this scroll that goes from me back to Noah over there of things that you feel like you're just not keeping up with. And you go on Instagram and you watch these, you know, videos like, hey, here's, here's a life hack that can make momming a little bit easier. Um, and it just makes you feel bad that you haven't done it. You know, the good news of the gospel isn't just, hey, Jesus set you free from the condemnation of your failures. Like, that is good news, and please lean into it. You sit here as a mother, if you're in Christ, not condemned, in Christ. No matter how many things you feel you messed up this past week, and you're like, yeah, Mother's Day feels really lousy to me right now. You are not condemned in Christ. And you are set free from the power of sin, so that not only those mistakes but the things within you that push you into those mistakes is not ultimately most true about you. What is most true is that the Son of God not only died, but he sent his own spirit to live within you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. His spirit changes you. And again, remember Stott said, this is not perfectionism. When we talk about obedience and growing and transformation of life, what we're talking about is slow baby steps. As Calvin puts it, it's plodding. It's crawling, it's army crawling in the muck and mud, but you're moving forward because you have a new heart by the power of the Spirit. And so let's see, again, the connection of this because Paul is going to drill into that phrase from verse four, according to the Spirit, because he knows it is very easy for us to think, okay, yeah, I got it. Now Jesus died for my sins and I can live a certain way. And it's very easy, though, to fall back on our own resources and live as if we're not filled with the Spirit. So he wants us to see what does that mean. So let's look at verses five through eight together and see the freedom for life and peace in the Spirit that Christ's death gives us. Now you'll notice as you look at those verses, there's a pattern, right? Paul continuously contrasts the flesh and the Spirit, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that will continue through the next several uh, paragraphs in Romans eight. And we know by Spirit, he means the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit of God who lives within us. But the word flesh is a little bit more of a puzzle for us, isn't it? Like, what, what does Paul mean by the flesh? 
And this is, a, this is an important term in Paul's letters in the Bible. Sometimes when Paul uses this word, he's just talking about flesh and blood, like somebody who's human. So earlier, when he talks about um, by sending his own son, verse three, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemns sin in the flesh, he's talking about Jesus' body. Jesus had a body. He wasn't just this little phantom angel thing. Like He really was human. He had flesh. So sometimes Paul uses flesh in that way. But whenever Paul is contrasting flesh and spirit, he's not just talking about your body. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he's not putting us in a mind versus matter scenario. Emotion, you know, flesh and emotion and desire versus reason and spirit. He's not talking about a dualism within who you are in your human nature. He's actually talking about two different kinds of people in redemptive history. He's talking about those who are dead in their sin, in their flesh, because they are all on their own. They are without Christ, separated from God. And he's talking about those who are in Christ and therefore are filled with his spirit. So he's talking about two different types of people, believers who have the spirit and unbelievers who are in their flesh, in other words, who are on their own. So flesh talks about the whole of fallen humanity, mind and body and heart, not just the body, the whole package of humanity in rebellion against God. And notice in verses five through six, Paul is saying um, that, that the spirit and the flesh, you know, life in the spirit and life without God, in, the, in other words, if at the core of the being, this is who you are, it affects what you set your mind on. And when he uses this phrase, set your mind on, he's not just talking about the content. You know, like, yeah, I could, it's actually easier than ever to figure out, like, what is on Matt's mind? Well, you know, look at my browser history on my phone, look at who I've been texting, uh, look at my book. Like, you can, we can quantify that data of the content that I'm thinking about. But Paul's not just talking about the content, he's really talking about the inner compass, the center of gravity of your mind, your heart, your affections, your desires? What is it that pulls things towards you? What is it that is driving the way you live, move, and have your being in this world? In other words, what's the filter? You know, what, what sets your priorities? When he talks about minds being set on the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit, that's what he means. So, you know, having a mindset on the spirit doesn't just mean, you know, you listen to the fish and only Christian radio, you only watch Christian movies, you know, things like that. He's talking about a mind whose desire is for the things of God, for the fruit of the Spirit, a mind whose center of gravity is no longer the self. Because a mind that is set on the flesh and the things of the flesh, that is a mind or a person whose whole life revolves around themselves. And often we think about that just sort of like, oh, that's just somebody who only wants to serve themselves and they have no self-control. You can do that negatively too. Your whole life can revolve around you trying to prove yourself that you're better than some mistake you had that you can't escape. You know, so somebody living according to the flesh, they're not just the son who runs away. They can also be the older son who stays behind and is bitter at the father because he doesn't like their performance. So we see both of those in our own lives before we were Christians. We see both of those ways of life according to the flesh among unbelievers today. And so as Paul is contrasting these two things, he's helping us be clear about what is it really like to be an unbeliever and what is it really like to be a believer. And to be clear when he's saying that we as Christians are those who walk according to the Spirit, who live according to the Spirit, who set our minds on the things of the Spirit, it is very easy for all of us to hear, that just sounds like perfection. Like, who always does that? I don't. 
And I'm sure none of you do either. And that's not what Paul is saying. Notice he is very careful. He did not say that those who live according to the Spirit, in other words, those who are Christians, he didn't say they always have it together. They never sin. They never mess up. They never struggle. No, he said they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Their center of gravity has changed. Think about what that does for you when you do struggle with sin. So often when we sin, we use that sin as counter evidence against our Christianity, right? Like you look at your sin and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm actually a Christian. I feel like a phony, especially if that is a sin that you've been struggling with for years. You look at it and you do Satan's accusing work for him. You say, I I don't really know if I'm a Christian because this thing keeps tripping me up. It keeps popping up in my life. I can't make it go away. That's actually not counter evidence that you're living according to the Spirit because by the power of the Spirit, that thing is not what has the ultimate say over you. You get to run to the throne of grace and remember, no condemnation, and it doesn't have ultimate power over you. The Spirit does. And so what Paul is doing is it's sort of like you go into the the eye doctor's office, right? And they put that massive thing in front of your face and they're like, all right, one or two, you're like, man, my eyesight really stinks because I can't tell what that says. And they just keep dialing in. They're trying to focus you. And they take time. It's not just like they have option A and option B. Like they keep going and dialing in until they get the right focus so they know exactly what's wrong with your eyes and what they can do to help you see. That's what Paul is doing here. He's dialing in to help you see you are not a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. We're like, sometimes you're according to the flesh, sometimes you're according to the spirit, and it depends on how you're doing in your performance. He's saying, no, if you're in Christ, You are in the spirit, full stop. He will talk more in in later verses in Romans 8 about, yeah, that means you now get to put to death the works of the flesh, like he talks about in Galatians 5. There is a mortifying aspect, a killing of sin that is ongoing, but who you are at your core, ultimately, in God's sight, for real, is you are a Christian. You are in Christ. You have the spirit dwelling within you, and your performance doesn't change it. And the difference then, to to draw out into deeper focus, Paul contrasts the life we have in Christ with the life that unbelievers have on their own, in their own flesh, without Jesus, without the Spirit. He gets to that in verses seven and eight. And he talks about the fact that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this matters tremendously for us when we think about, engage with, talk about unbelievers. Because how many times do you find yourself thinking, why on earth does that person think, do, or believe that thing? Like, don't they think? Like, how do they see that that is not, like, how how don't they see that that is wrong? Well, Paul's telling you, their mind is hostile against God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. They cannot please God. Now, if you're more maintenance-minded, you care a lot about the truth, you might be thinking, that sounds like relativism. Like, are you saying that God's law changes and Paul's like, hey, just be nice to these unbelievers. They don't know any better. It's not a big deal. Like, what do you expect? No, no, God's law is God's law. It doesn't change. But what Paul is saying is that don't think that if you just you know, slam their face in the law and you lob truth grenades and truth bombs on them, that it's gonna make a difference. What's gonna make a difference is if the spirit gives them a new heart and replaces that hostility with peace with God. Romans 5.1, remember, 
We're just engaged with unbelievers well. We don't just need more truth or just more grace or patience or love from ourselves. We need more prayer. We need to ask the Spirit to be on the move in unbelievers' lives because he is the one who makes a difference and he's in you and you have access to him in your prayers. And so ask him to move. And so that's a good question for us to to ask ourselves this morning. You know, how are you engaging with those you know who are in the flesh? How are you engaging with people you know who don't know Jesus? Do you avoid them because you're scared of the questions they'll ask? Or because you don't want to admit what you believe and how it's very different from what they believe? Do you bitterly kind of stew and you're like, I know what they think and it drives me nuts Do you spend time combing through things online, looking for more ammo in a fight? Or are you praying for them? And again, I'm not just saying like, you know, you're on your knees for five hours every day. Like, that'd be awesome. Um, But do you just, is it in your regular prayer rhythm? Like 30 seconds, you say, all right, I'm gonna pray um, for Timmy because Timmy is my friend and he doesn't know Jesus and I want him to know Jesus. And the spirit alone can change hearts. That is a truism that we often say. And it's not a truism, so it's like, well, only the spirit can change hearts, so I don't have anything to do. No, no, only the spirit can change hearts. He lives in you. You can pray and ask him to move, so pray. Pray. The same goes for, you know, your family members. You know, sometimes the hardest unbelievers to engage with are those who are in your family. And yet, you have the spirit in you. You can ask him to draw them to Jesus, to give them a heart that is at peace with God because of the work of Christ. This is something we ought to pray for our children. You know, whether they've made, especially if they haven't made a profession of faith yet, no amount of Christian education, no amount of Sunday school can displace or replace the work of the Spirit. The Spirit has to move in those things. And again, as parents, we need to believe that. Your greatest resource, your greatest realm of agency as a parent is in prayer because you are asking the Spirit of God to move in your children's lives. And then the other question to ask ourselves as we, as we consider these verses is how are you walking in the life and peace you have in the spirit? And again, so often we need our vision changed. We don't see ourselves clearly as God speaks of us in scripture. We don't think of ourselves as those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. We think of ourselves as those who are just barely getting our act together enough to get to church kind of on time. And yeah, that may have happened, but that's not who you are. You are a beloved child of the Father. You are in Christ who died for you and you have his spirit living within you. Do you live like that? Do you struggle like that? Do you fail like that? The spirit is with you in all those things. He is the one whose presence we need every passing hour. So we pray, abide with me. Francis Schaeffer, one of the famous apologists, explains it like this. He says, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit He is the agent in our present space and time, historical relationship with God. In other words, he's saying, this is not an idea, y'all, it's real. Our strength as Christians is not in our Christian character. It is in the power of Jesus Christ, crucified, raised, ascended, glorified, the living Christ. And how is this power to be laid hold of? Are we merely to think about it? No, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he is the agent who brings us in touch with the whole Trinity. Where is God? He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And so when you feel weak, and you are weak, draw upon his power. When you face that sin for the millionth time, draw upon his power. 
literally just pray and say, Spirit, help me, help me. And lean upon him because you go it not alone. The Christian is never alone. Even if you are separated from the body of Christ for whatever reasons, Christian is never alone because the spirit of God lives within you. And without him, no amount of you know, Christian busyness will do you any good. But with him, those things can sustain your life. And so Romans 8, 1 through 8 teaches us that Christ's death sets us free from condemnation and the power of sin and for life and peace in the spirit. And so what a great gift that this morning as we think of these things from God's word, we get to come to his table because one of the things the spirit uses to, to help focus our vision and help us remember who we are in Christ is this table. Because at this table, it's not just a memorial where we remember and we try to think really hard about Jesus and what his death means. The spirit is at work in us at this place, at this table. And what he does is he helps us by faith feast upon Christ. In other words, as you eat the bread, the spirit reminds you that just as really as you consume that bread, so really on Jesus' body was your condemnation consumed. It is that gone. It is that real to you as that bread passing your lips. And in the same way, just as the juice from the cup will pass your lips, so really, so surely does the spirit of God live in you now, liberating you from sin's power and setting you free for a life of peace and growth in Christ-likeness and holiness with God. And he uses this table to strengthen believers in their faith in those realities.